So good evening. And thank you for joining me again tonight. This evening I'd like to continue with the theme that I've been exploring over the last couple of weeks, namely the seven factors of awakening, those seven highly skillful mental qualities that when developed and balanced with each other, provide the optimum conditions for insight to arise. Now, not all of you were here in the last couple of weeks, so just a quick reminder of what these seven factors are for context. So I'll name them quite slowly now, and if you were here last time, similarly, as you hear each one, you might just notice what effects, if any, it has. So for some, there might be an instant sense of recognition or resonance, while others might feel less clear. And if you're anything like me, there's usually one that you totally forgot about. So here they are in the order that they're pretty much always presented in sati or mindfulness. Dhamma-vichaya, or investigation. Virya, energy. Piti, joy, or rapture. Pasari, tranquility. Samari, or mental absorption. And upeka, or equanimity. So the order is important because, as you may have experienced for yourselves, there's a causal connection between each of these factors. And at times they can develop a natural momentum flowing from one to the other in a kind of spontaneous chain reaction that can become quite effortless and powerfully prepares the mind for insight. And the sequence of them is also important because it groups the factors in terms of their overall effect on our mental energy. So the first factor of mindfulness, it's energetically neutral. But then the next three factors of investigation and energy and joy, they all have the effect of brightening and enlivening the mind. Well, the subsequent three factors, tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity, they all quieten and calm the mind, bring it to profound stillness and steadiness. So last week, I focused on the first two factors of mindfulness and investigation. And this evening, I'd like to continue with the sequence to focus on energy and joy. But because it is a causal sequence, I'll just briefly go back to the start and say a little more about mindfulness investigation so we can see the interrelationship between them and see also how they support energy and joy to arise. So sati, mindfulness, as we all know, is the crucial first factor because if there's no awareness of what's happening in our minds, none of the other factors can develop. 
as I mentioned the other week, as mindfulness has become more and more mainstream, it's sometimes in a way reduced to just being present with your experience without trying to change it in any way. So we might be told, just be with it, just be with it, be with it, be with it, whatever it is. But in the context of the Buddha's teachings, mindfulness is developed in the service of wisdom. So there's a discerning aspect to it that understands whether what we're experiencing is creating further suffering or the opposite if it's leading to freedom. So in the words of Sayadu Utejaniya that I quoted last week, mindfulness alone is not enough. Mindfulness alone is not enough. In the context of the seven factors of awakening, when mindfulness is clear and continuous, that refined recognition of what's actually happening in our direct experience, it naturally gives rise to interest, to curiosity, to the awakening factor of investigation or dhamma And this quality of investigation, it works in different ways and on different levels. So as I said last week, in the context of meditation, this investigation is not so much about thinking about our experience, not analyzing it, not conceptualizing it, but exploring it more directly on an embodied level, an intuitive level, And that can give us new information that we might not have been able to access just by using the intellect alone. So last week I spoke about the technique of what I call post-mortem mindfulness and gave it as just one example of a form of investigation that we can use particularly to understand some of those more entrenched habits of reactivity. And as we learn how to explore those patterns in a more embodied way, together with kindness and compassion, they usually soften, and eventually they can release entirely. So post-mortem mindfulness is just one example, one way that we might develop this factor of investigation. And it's particularly useful for some of those more entrenched and afflictive mind states. As we get used to releasing those, when the more coarse and painful states have started to settle, at least to some extent, the mind naturally becomes quieter and steadier and more still. And then we need to adjust how we're practicing with investigation to suit the relative refinement of the mind. So rather than using more cognitive mental processes that can actually disturb the samadhi, at these times, as I mentioned last week, the investigation might become more like just an energetic movement in the mind. So I said how for me sometimes it's just like this energetic movement of a question mark without any words or concepts at all. And even just that much, it can brighten the mind and strengthen our attention and interest. 
So as with all of these awakening factors, they can be developed and then cultivated on more and more refined levels. And part of the skill of this practice is understanding how much effort or energy to bring to each of these qualities. Okay, so just from that description, maybe you're already getting a sense of how investigation flows naturally into the next awakening factor, which is virya, or energy, sometimes also translated as tireless energy, heroic effort or endeavor, persistence, vigor, strength, and exertion. So at this point, I usually like to take a moment just to pause and invite you to notice if there are any inner responses when you hear words like heroic effort or tireless energy or persistence and vigor and exertion. Sounds like maybe there were some responses, at least for me early on in my practice. When I would hear these kind of terms, I would often feel a sudden wave of exhaustion and pretty often the beginnings, pricklings of some kind of self-judgment and in a voice that would say, yep, they're giving this talk tonight because of me, because they know I'm not working hard enough, I'm not being persistent enough, I'm definitely not being heroic enough, whatever that means. So if you do perhaps notice anything like that in your own experience, Just to acknowledge it's very common because words like effort or energy, even energy, they can touch some pretty deep and strong conditioning, individual conditioning, societal conditioning. I'll say more about that soon, but for now, just I invite you to meet any reactions there might be with kindness as best you can. So in some ways, the first effort when listening to a talk about effort is to make the effort to put aside some of those habitual perceptions and views and self-views and just see if you can bring in a more relaxed and open way of listening so that you can take in what might be useful and set aside anything that doesn't feel so relevant at this point. And just in terms of relevance, again, I want to acknowledge that when we're exploring these awakening factors, sometimes for some people, even the term awakening factor can trip us up because of misunderstanding about what's meant by awakening. And some people perhaps can have a misguided belief that their own practice, that's just not deep enough to even be thinking about awakening So again, just for context, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in the first talk, the definition of awakening that I'm orienting to here is the heart-mind that's free of greed or passion, free of hatred or aversion, free of ignorance and delusion. And I'm pretty confident that all of us here 
we have tasted at least some moments of this kind of freedom, of the heart-mind being temporarily free of these afflictive states. And I also know from talking to you in the individual meetings that the awakening factors, they're developing to some degree for all of you, even if perhaps you aren't consciously recognizing them as such yet. So just taking the awakening factor of energy or effort as an example, whether we frame it to ourselves as an awakening factor, we all have already been strengthening this quality. As you all know from your own experience, it does take energy and effort to do this practice. It certainly took energy and effort to get yourselves here to the forest refuge. And it takes energy and effort to keep showing up hour after hour, day after day. And it takes energy and effort to keep meeting whatever your experience is with, hopefully, as much wisdom and kindness as you can. So it takes energy. And because we have human bodies and minds, we don't have an unlimited supply of energy. So a big part of the art of meditation is learning how to apply effort skillfully. And this is why the Buddha taught what's called the middle way. That middle way, the midpoint between extremes. Not too little, not too much, just right. In the Buddha's teachings, there's a well-known metaphor for this balanced effort, and it uses the analogy of playing the lute, a stringed instrument that was common at the time of the Buddha. So one of the men who joined the Buddha's community of monastics was a man by the name of Sona, and he had been a musician, a lute player, before he became a monk. And after he became a monk, he found the meditation practice really challenging. And he got very frustrated because he wasn't making any progress. Maybe some of us can recognize that. So he was fortunate to be able to go to the Buddha to ask him for help. And the Buddha listened to Sona describe his practice. And then he asked him, when you played the lute, if you wanted a good sound... Did you tune the strings very tight? And of course the answer was no. Too tight, doesn't sound good, and the strings can break. And then he asked the opposite question. If you wanted a good sound, do you tune the strings too loose? Again, obvious. If the strings are too loose, the sound will be dull and off-key. So we need to tune our own strings just right to find that balance between too tight and too loose. And one aspect of this analogy that I appreciate is that it involves listening. So listening to our own bodies and hearts and minds to recognize in any moment what for us is too tight and what's too loose. And this practice of deep listening to our inner experience and to our outer circumstances, that's what helps us to know what is appropriate and balanced effort at any given time. 
But even when we have found that midpoint, we have to keep checking. Because just like with the lute, you don't tune it once and that's it forever. Any instrument, it goes out of tune after a while. It's the same with our meditation practice. The amount of energy needed now to stay present in this talk will be different to the amount of energy needed in the last sitting of the evening. It will be different in the morning, different in the walking meditation, different when you're engaged in daily life tasks, and different when we're sick or injured or dealing with emotional pain. Now, even though perhaps on one level this might sound totally obvious and common sense, it's still surprisingly common that when it comes to our meditation practice, we often tend to get caught in a very binary approach to the effort we apply. And often it manifests as a kind of all-or-nothing approach. So we often find ourselves starting a retreat with a phase of pretty intense striving. And we push ourselves to sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk, sometimes trying to prove to ourselves or to others what a good meditator we are. But as you probably know from your own experience, that kind of pushing intensity, rigidity, it's not that sustainable. And at some point, there's usually a collapse perhaps, into exhausted apathy if we've really been overdoing it. And at this point, we often lose our motivation and we barely show up at all until eventually we push ourselves into another phase of intense effort. And then the whole cycle starts over again, swinging from striving to apathy and striving to apathy. And this pattern is so common that I started to think of it as what I call a superhero to slug syndrome. And so when we're in superhero mode, we push ourselves to make 110% effort. But if we investigate more carefully, we might find that that effort is often driven by fear. The fear that if I don't maintain that intense effort, I'm going to stall completely and become that loathsome slug that I used to be, which ironically is what sometimes happens. Not so much the loathsome slug part of our hypercritical imagination, but someone who just for a while finds it difficult to keep meditating. So if at times you recognize this pattern in your own practice, it can be very helpful to turn to the compassion wing for a while, Remembering that balance between the two wings of awakening, wisdom and compassion. So bringing in some metta, some kindness, together with compassion and self-compassion. Again, not with the intention to turn it into yet another project, I should be more self-compassionate, but to explore the Brahma-Vihara practices lightly, just as a support to help us come back to balance, to find more ease. So this getting too tight, trying too hard, applying too much effort and energy is a very common pattern. 
And it often comes from a combination of our own individual and family conditioning together with the broader conditioning from society, which, at least in terms of mainstream society, tends to instill in us values such as competitiveness and individualism and their shadow sides of unworthiness and fear of failure and a chronic sense of inadequacy, not being good enough, not doing it right, not progressing fast enough, and so on. So again, if you possibly recognize any of these kind of patterns, I just invite you to try not to take them personally and to not see them as your own individual neurosis. Since I've been in this teacher role, I have been shocked and saddened to see and hear just how universal these patterns are. I used to think they were just unique to me, and then I have heard so many people sharing variations of that same theme. So try to recognize that these are just very common mental patterns arising due to conditions. They're not you. They're not yours. They're not who you are. And they're not your fault. So that's the wisdom aspect of the practice. And then the compassion side recognizes that even so, these thought forms have an impact. They hurt. So we try to meet them with kindness and care rather than resistance and reactivity. And as we keep training to meet these patterns with wisdom and compassion, eventually their grip on us loosens and it becomes much easier to find that balanced effort that the Buddha was pointing to in his instructions to the lute player. Then as the mindfulness and the investigation and the energy start to become more refined, we can start to see some of those more subtle types of pressure that may be interfering with the deepening of our practice. So here at the Forest Refuge, you all are highly experienced meditators, and you know that Vipassana practice is pointing us towards deepening levels of insight. Insight into what are known as the three universal characteristics of anicca or impermanence, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, and anatta or not-self. And in terms of not-self, when the mind is more still and quiet, we can start to recognize the subtle pressure that comes from creating a fixed sense of self or identity out of our meditation experience. So that's why in some of the morning reflections I've been inviting us just to notice if there's a sense of someone who is being mindful, someone who is doing the practice, And notice if there's any tendency to, in a way, appropriate the meditation practice as mine, to identify with it and to make it me, who I am. There's a challenge here because it's 
totally counterintuitive to most people and totally countercultural in terms of mainstream society. But the deepest freedom comes from letting go and letting be and not so much from doing. But in everyday life, as we know, there's often almost an addiction to busyness and to doing and to being in control. So it's almost impossible not to bring this with us into our practice. But as we keep gently investigating this tendency to want to control everything, eventually there is a shift and we experience very directly the profound benefits that come from moving from what I think of as a will-driven effort to more of a dharma-driven effort. So by will-driven, I mean that more forceful energy that centers around a sense of me, the one doing the practice, the one who's responsible for constantly monitoring and micromanaging every aspect of it. And just from that brief description, you might have a sense of how tiring it is to practice with that constantly self-referencing kind of effort. At some point, though, almost in spite of that effort, enough momentum does develop. And we find ourselves more able to relax back into trusting the Dharma to do its work. And this is what I mean by Dharma-driven effort. We start to realize that all we need to do is set up the appropriate conditions, and then we can settle back and enjoy the ride. So coming back to the surfing metaphor that I brought in the other morning, the appropriate conditions are metaphorically making the effort to paddle out to catch the wave. And once we've managed to catch the wave, the amount of effort that's needed at that point is much less. It's almost effortless. So in the Zen tradition, they do talk about effortless effort. And as many of you know, it is such a relief to be able to experience this kind of effortless effort. It's a relief and a delight. So now at last we come to the awakening factor of pity or joy. And hopefully from what I just described, you might have a sense of how as our energy and our effort becomes more refined, this quality of skillful joy, it naturally arises. Just as with all the other factors of awakening, we can't will ourselves to experience joy. We can't force it to come up. But we can set up the conditions that help to bring it about. And those conditions are the three previous awakening factors. So this is how Joseph Goldstein describes the relationship between them. The Buddha said in the Anapanasati Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness of breathing, that pity, rapture or joy is born from tireless energy. Energy comes from investigation and inquiry, and this discerning wisdom arises from continuous mindfulness. 
And right here we see the lawful progression of the factors of awakening. So joy, in some ways, is an inevitable experience as our practice develops and deepens. So just to explore a little more what this awakening factor is. In Pali, the term is piti. And again, quoting Joseph Goldstein, he says this word piti has been translated in many ways, including rapture, happiness, joy, delight, and pleasurable or rapt interest. Reflect for a moment on your felt sense of what these words suggest. Piti has the function of refreshing and delighting the mind and body, like a cool breeze on a hot day. Because rapture directly opposes ill will and is incompatible with it, when the mind is filled with piti, there's no room for anger or ill will to arise. That sounds good, at least to me. And again, in my own experience, I know that earlier on in my practice, this quality in particular felt to be quite elusive. And for some of you who may be here for a shorter retreat, it's worth remembering that for most people, it just takes time for this factor to develop. So... For some people, just hearing about pity can bring up a little bit of doubt or discouragement, wondering when are we ever going to experience something like that instead of the pain in the body and the struggle in the mind. Even so, I think all of us here have probably been experiencing more of this factor than you might have consciously realized. And this is partly because, perhaps, of all of the awakening factors, this one might be the most challenging, the most challenging to our default conditioning, specifically to the mind's inherent negativity bias, which, as neuroscientists have, scientists have discovered, this bias means that we pay far more attention to experiences that are unpleasant because they might be threatening in some way, than we do to experiences that are pleasant because they don't pose any threat to us. So we have this basic biological negativity bias in the mind. And then on top of it, we often bring quite strong and unconscious views about Dharma practice and how it's supposed to be. At least for me, early on in my practice, I was pretty totally unaware of how I was carrying a distorted belief that any kind of enjoyment or joy was somehow wrong, bad, even a kind of a sin. Now, this probably came from the type of Christianity that I grew up with. And I'm not saying that this is true of all Christianity, but the way I heard what was presented to me back then it formed this very basic assumption that a spiritual path is supposed to be unpleasant. And if I was actually enjoying something, then almost by definition, it couldn't be spiritual. And I had this kind of unconscious belief that it was somehow noble to be suffering, 
So if my meditation was painful, uncomfortable, or disturbing, then I was doing the real work. On the other hand, if my experiences were neutral or even pleasant, then I must be doing something wrong, not working hard enough, or not going deep enough, or not seeing clearly enough. And while it is true that the Buddha was very clear about the dangers of getting attached to sense-based pleasures, he made a very crucial distinction between sense-based pleasures and skillful mental pleasure, such as the joy that's being named here as an awakening factor, and alongside many other beautiful qualities of heart and mind. The qualities like generosity, or gratitude, or happiness, contentment, ease, equanimity, and so on. These are all examples of skillful mental states that we can think of as an allowable pleasure. And that's worth cultivating them because they help to sustain and nourish us on this path to freedom. And without them, the practice can get very dry and, in fact, unsustainable. So if there are times in your overall practice when you feel stuck in some way or feel like you've lost momentum, it might be worth checking to see how you're relating to pleasant experience, to see is there enjoyment in your practice. And if you notice perhaps some kind of fear of enjoyment, it's good not to blame yourself. Because even the Buddha, he also practiced for many years with the wrong attitude before eventually realizing that he needed to lighten up, as they say. So I think most of you are probably familiar with the life story of the Buddha, but I think it's worth just retelling briefly now just to highlight his understanding of how crucial it is to have some kind of pleasure on this path to freedom. So as you know, according to legend, the Buddha-to-be was born a prince. But as a young man, he became pretty dissatisfied with his life of total luxury. And he left the palace to spend many years wandering around northern India, As a spiritual seeker, he was exploring all the different kinds of hardcore spiritual practices that were available back then in an effort to try to give his life more meaning. Now, at that time, most of the renowned teachers of his day, they were teaching pretty extreme austerity practices. And the aim of these was to try to subdue sense desire, basically by tormenting, torturing the body. And the Buddha-to-be was a very good student, so he fully tried all of the different approaches that his teachers gave him, including eventually eating so little food that he almost died of starvation. And according to the story, he was pretty much in constant pain, and close to death before, fortunately, he finally recognized that he wasn't getting closer to the freedom that he was searching for. And at that point, he suddenly remembered a profoundly pleasant experience that he'd had as a young boy. 
And the texts, they describe how when he was about eight years old, he had been sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree, watching his father, the king, take part in a harvest festival. And it was pleasantly cool in the shade of the tree, so that his body and his mind became very relaxed, so much that he spontaneously dropped into the first jhana, which is a very pleasant state of mental absorption, characterized by pity, joy. And with that pleasant memory, the Buddha-to-be suddenly recognized that it was his fear of pleasure that had been getting in the way of his awakening. And he wondered to himself, quote, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? And he suddenly realized that mental pleasure had been the missing ingredient And it said that not long after this realization, he attained complete nibbana, complete freedom of heart and mind. So in this passage, the Buddha is making an important distinction between ordinary sense-based pleasures and skillful mental qualities. And he recognizes that The pleasure that comes from skillful mental states is a very refined type of pleasure that supports the path to freedom. Whereas getting attached to ordinary sense-based pleasures is what keeps us caught, chasing after the next hit of sense pleasure, the next, the next, the next. So we're like hamsters on the wheel of samsara, just going round and round with no understanding of how to free ourselves. So this distinction between sense-based pleasure and skillful mental pleasure is a crucial understanding in this path to freedom. And having said that, I also want to acknowledge that we can use sense-based pleasure wisely to help support the arising of joy as an awakening factor. And one way we can do this is to bring mindfulness to pleasant feeling tone. Feeling tones that Caroline was speaking of the other night. We can tune in to pleasant Vedana, just that bare knowing of experience at any of the sense doors that registers as pleasant. So we bring mindfulness to it and then we can investigate it and explore it and allow that pleasantness to lift the energy in the heart and the mind. And as that refines, it helps to open all kinds of other skillful mental qualities, such as appreciation, well-being, ease, and even joy. So we see the interplay of these first three awakening factors of mindfulness, investigation, energy, working together to support the arising of joy. Now, just to see if we can get a sense of that in our own experience, I'd like to explore an experience that many of us have had here on retreat at the Forest Refuge, either on previous retreats or perhaps even this week. I think a couple of times that I know of, there was the experience of a deer coming up to the window here 
just outside the meditation hall. And if you noticed it, uh, it comes and it just looks and stands very still, looks through the window, gets a sense of who is here, with seemingly no trace of fear. So if we explore that experience in terms of the awakening factors, perhaps we hear a rustling sound or an unusual movement outside, mindfulness directs the attention there and recognizes, oh, it's a deer, or maybe a moose. I've even heard some people have seen a moose here recently. So with that recognition of deer, the mind naturally gets interested and brightens it engages with the experience. It takes in some of the details, recognizing it's a female deer. She's standing totally still. She's looking in the window. She's making eye contact with me. She seems to be completely calm. And this refined curiosity about what we're taking in, it recognizes the experience as pleasant. And this naturally brings more energy into the mind. And as we stay with that experience, we fully let it in, open to the pleasantness. Possible that a trace of delight might arise. Lightness, maybe even joy. So does that feel true for any of you? Do you recognize that experience? You might just raise your hand if it feels somewhat similar yeah and if it doesn't don't worry you don't have to make anything happen but just to notice that sense of connection to the pleasantness of the experience and when we can let our awareness just rest in the skillful mental qualities come up they can become stronger deeper we dwell there And just allow them to bring all kinds of other skillful qualities. Maybe openness or interest, appreciation and ease. And then eventually they fade away and perhaps there's just equanimity. So coming back to joy as a factor of awakening... Although at first it might feel quite weak, just a little bud, as Bhikkhu Analio likes to say. With practice, it gets easier to set up the conditions that help joy to arise. And that whole positive chain reaction, it begins with mindfulness. Continuity of mindfulness that naturally leads to investigation. And that interest, curiosity, willingness to explore raises energy in the mind. And as this energy becomes more and more refined, we learn how to get out of our own way. And then the natural momentum of that energy turns into effortless effort. And we can experience that profound yet subtle joy of the heart-mind resting in the upwelling of all of the awakening factors. So sometimes in my own practice, when I've been able to experience that kind of effortless effort, 
It reminds me of how hawks or eagles can soar on thermal updrafts. And I've seen that at times here in Massachusetts. But I had a very powerful experience of it quite a few years ago now when I was living in Australia. And at that time, I was camping with a friend in the Warrumbungle National Park. And this is an area of very rugged landscape of ancient and jagged volcanic peaks. And apparently the name Warrumbungle means crooked mountains in the Gamalaroi language. So the Gamalaroi are the local Aboriginal people who are the traditional owners of that land. So my friend and I were having a great time hiking in all of these dramatic landscapes. We climbed up along a range of peaks that were known as the Breadknife. And because we were so high, we had an amazing view of some wedge-tailed eagles that were soaring on thermal currents just above us. And these eagles are huge. They have wingspans of six feet to seven feet. And they can soar for hours on end without beating their wings. And they can get up to 5,900 feet, sometimes even higher. But on this occasion, because we were so high, they seemed so close. And I could see all the details of the small feathers on their underbellies. And it was a magnificent sight to see these huge birds just soaring upwards on these wide, wide wings, seemingly without any effort whatsoever. So I offer that image to close just as a reminder that all of this is a natural process. Just like in my last talk last week, I quoted that passage from the suttas that describes how rainwater flows downhill to fill the creeks, the pools, the lakes, and eventually to the vast ocean. And in the same way, the awakening factors, they just naturally incline and flow towards awakening, towards freedom, towards nibbana. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to find the momentum of the awakening factors and to touch that deepest freedom of heart and mind. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Let the words dissolve. Close by chanting the sharing of blessings.
goodness specializes from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtues, my mother, my father, and my relatives, listen on the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings guardian spirits of the earth and the lord of death may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile may all beings receive the blessings of my life may those seen attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of daring may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor may the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve the buddha is my excellent refuge unsurpassed is the protection of the dhamma the solitary buddha is my noble guide the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.